The particular type of transient surge that I've been studying, the type which I like to call an effect without a cause, is a very interesting situation in creation in which the creator, for lack of a better presumption of why this occurs, has made it possible for energy to enter space from counter space whenever there is a hunger or a need for energy in a particular locale, but there is some but not enough, and the amount, the discrepancy is very huge, not just a little bit. And as this allows for a transient to occur, because it wants to occur in a sense all the time, provided the right conditions are there to allow it. And when you've got a free energy circuit that is designed to carry, let's say, a 100,000 watt load, yet it supplies only a microvolt, a millionth part of a volt, that's a discrepancy of 100 million to one as to how much energy is being supplied and how much load is um, imposing itself upon the circuit to demand something greater by a factor of a hundred million. And when Paul Babcock, in his presentation, one of his presentations, uh, cites a court case in which Tesla presented evidence for his... uh, He presented disclosure for his uh, magnifying transmitter in which the output was 10 million times greater than the input. Um, This is within the ballpark of where I'm accustomed to um, target my circuits because EVs of today require about 100,000 watts of power, and yet the amount of power I supply to the circuit is in the realm of nanowatts or picowatts, which is far greater um, increase than what Tesla was talking about. But that's, you know, I deal with theory. I don't deal with uh, the practical world so much. Um, But it's similarly extreme. (laughs) It's accentuated to the extreme uh, difference between demand and supply. And when you've got that kind of difference as opposed to zero, as opposed to ten times or a hundred times, you've got a provocation that you wouldn't have otherwise. If it was a hundred or ten times difference, or if it was zero difference, there'd be no provocation. There'd be no demand to uh, make up the difference from the side of the ether, namely counter space, to the side of space that we know of as a physical um, medium for physical manifestation of matter and energy. And with the prompting of the kind of characteristics I've just described, it appears to me the Creator has created 
the anomaly we call a transient surge to make it possible to supply physical space with a certain amount of voltage surge coming from the ether, from counter space, but no more than a transient of a surge. Not a continuous surge, but a transient surge. We choose the word very correctly, the word transient, because it's very short-lived. It's very extreme. It doesn't have a whole lot of power to it but uh, under conventional circuits, but that's because conventional circuits are not designed to capture it and foster its development into something greater. So consequently, they suppress it or they ignore it or, um, or one or the other. And by suppression, I mean the conditions for its arisal is not encouraged. It's discouraged. But if it's ignored, then it might occur, but it's not taken advantage of. <clears throat> um, and so the mechanism is quite simple. It's easy to see the logic here because... The voltage that comes in from the ether to the physical provides a negative feedback in which all of a sudden now the difference between the demand and the supply is not so great anymore because of that humongous voltage surge and so it cuts itself off no sooner than it started it stops and thus prevents a uh, endless a spontaneous, endless uh, stream of voltage and, and, and thus of power if, if held over, over a long enough period of time, resulting in, in a stream of power. Uh, but only in, instead, only a momentary uh, voltage surge amounting to very little power, but a humongous amount of voltage, which shows it could have been worse if it had been allowed to continue. But it doesn't. A mere teeny-weeny fraction of a second amounting to very little power, but enough voltage to show that how dangerous it would have been had Mother Nature not curtailed it abruptly from um, any lasting duration of any, um, uh, with any dangerous consequences thereof. So it's a gift, but it's a regulated gift. And this is something that Paul Babcock has mentioned that if you figure out how to get around Mother Nature's regulators, you know, he calls them governors. If you f it's, it's a governed um, response in which it's allowed to happen under certain circumstances, but it's governed not to get into the excessive realm due to negative feedback, <clears throat> such that the very voltage that comes in uh, results in the suppression of any further voltage from coming in. But if you figure out how, uh, how to get around that, then you can have all the energy you want. And it's high-end, I, I would say it's sophisticated uh, learning because it requires intelligence to figure out how to work with it instead of against it or ignore it. It's not a simple flashlight circuit situation. And through trial and error, I managed to uh, develop the skill to some degree <clears throat> enough to be able to categorize um, over unity in general into three different categories and this is one of them and be able to simulate it 
under different simulators, provided the simulator is realistic. Um, if it's, or even idealistic, but it, it complete in its uh, appraisal of electrodynamic theory and doesn't leave anything out. For instance, it doesn't leave out um, spark gaps. Um, there is uh, every uh, oh, what's it called? EveryCircuit.com, I think it's called. Um, they include switches, but there are no transients when you flip the switch because there's also no spark gap in that simulator that's provided for the user. Because if they did, then they'd have to script um, surges, negative uh, resistant or negative impedance, if you prefer, surges into their switches to make them realistic, and they don't. And neither are there any spark gaps or... Uh, neon bulbs provided because it's not a realistic simulator. So they don't provide for the inclusion of transients and they don't want the user to deal with them, to know that they exist or, or learn to work with them, you know, by happy accident. So it's just about impossible to create over unity in their simulator. And it usually isn't. When the simulator is realistic incorporating all of electrodynamic theory, not just some of it nor most of it, then it is possible, it may be difficult, but it's never impossible. It's always possible to one degree or another, depending on the simulator in question. Now, I've learned recently of a class of simulators that makes use of the field surrounding um, any inductor, such as a piece of wire, or a coil, or even a diode, um, because they create fields, and the fields have to be taken into account. And the simulators I've been dealing with never take the fields into account, unless you specify that there is a field there, and call it a mutual inductive field. But otherwise, <laughs> it's never taken into account. And there's also an anomaly that has nothing to do with Randolph error, um, that can create divergences. And divergences is what overunity amounts to being. A convergence will um, give you a finite result, but a divergence will oscillate to infinite gain, or at least for a little while do that. And it looks like there's another type of error in simulation modeling other than round-off error, which is not an error anymore because of 64-bit um, computers, such as Windows 10, disallows round-off error to such a degree that you can forget about it as a problem or as a risk. But there's this other problem now that I'm learning about, and it's solved by switching to um, simulators. It looks like it's, it's solved by switching to simulators that involve the field surrounding inductors and maps them and so when you have two pieces of wire or two tracings let's say too close together in a uh, circuit board and they're interacting with each other in a capacitive fashion you want to know about that you, you want to deal with it and plan for it um, now one of my circuits in, in, in specifically in, that it comes to light over this is the mutual inductance the three different mutual inductances 
of five coils in three sets, two pairs and a single, when the mutual inductances among them utilize the mathematical properties of the golden ratio. Not the golden ratio itself, it could, but it, it expands beyond the golden ratio alone to include the properties of the golden ratio as a more generic, broad way to mathematically precisely define those mutual, three mutual inductances. Because it's a very interesting circuit in that not only does it give you over unity, it, you can regulate it to, to give you over unity in any way, shape, or form that you wish, to any degree that you wish, let's put it that way. And pulse it in a strobing fashion so that it collapses in a periodic manner so that it, you can literally script it so that it design it so that it never reaches infinity and thus you can prevent the destruction of the circuit if you stay within the parameters of whatever you assume your the tolerances of your circuit to uphold um, and then when you take the RMS of, of that strobing you can uh, qualify okay what am I designing this for you know what DC level of, of RMS am I am I designing it for and what are the peaks of the strobes that I'm designing it for so that the, the peaks of voltages and amperages and what's the frequency of the strobing um, one thing I haven't learned yet how to, to um, regulate though is the frequency at the basis of, of that strobing so uh, the sine wave uh, generator feeding the circuit might be 30,000 cycles per second um, at a microvolt of input, but the parasitic uh, frequency that's driving the thing is a, uh, I can't call it anymore a triangle wave like I used to. I have to call it a, um, a point wave or a, it's not a non wave, a point non wave, because the energy only appears twice during each cycle, once at each half cycle, and only for an infinitely uh, short duration in which the, the, the data point value for that amperage or voltage appears only long enough to be mapped for one time interval whatever that time interval happens to be that the simulator is choosing for that particular interval to uh, calculate for and it doesn't appear again until the next half cycle and it, it oscillates um, positive to negative um, and the amperage and the voltage are always out of phase by 180 degrees. So the extreme amperage and the extreme voltage are always opposed polarities, one positive, the other negative, and then they switch the next half cycle. The rest of the half cycle, there's no appearance of the energy at all. And I believe the, um, pers the, that, the frequency of that... <laughs> point non-wave uh, formation um, was around 150,000 cycles per second even though the input was 30,000 and the strobing might be 600 or uh, yeah I think it was 600 was one example 10 times more than a 60 cycle uh, sine wave so the strobing wasn't too bad and so I figured okay a motor could accommodate or a pulse width modulator might be able to accommodate or tolerate, I should say, that kind of input 
and then come up with an appropriate wave for a motor, you know, a square wave analog, an analog for a square wave uh, appropriate for a motor. In any case, getting back to the topic, um, so I'm kind of curious whether or not um, that type of circuit would survive under field simulators uh, simulation. Um, it's a very interesting circuit because there's very all kinds of variations, and one variation is to short out the five coils so that they all share a single node, a single terminal. In other words, a single point on each of those five coils are all linked together. So they all share the same point, the same terminal, and there's only one of them. So they're loops, basically, that cross at a single point. Each one, you pick one point on each of the five, and you link them there, and you join them. You solder it there, or weld it, as the case may be. Probably weld. Um, so they all share one terminal, one point, and that's it. They're self-shorted to themselves and to each other. And then you feed it with a single line um, coming from one terminal of a sine wave generator, the other terminal of which goes to ground. And that's it. And that kind of... A, and again, uh, let's. I think it was like a million cycles per second I was using, or 100,000 I think had to be the minimum. And it was a microvolt. And yet the thing escalated to infinite oblivion, despite the fact that all five coils were shorted to a single point. I mean, that's uh, of, of commonality. I mean, that's, uh, you know, an uncanny. And then all you had to worry about were the three mutual inductances, that they be constructed around the qualities, the properties of the golden ratio, namely your first mutual inductance among your largest, larger pair of coils, you know, like one Henry each, um, would be in the realm of a minimum of the golden ratio, uh, zero, you know, 61.8% uh, uh, coupling factor, magnetic coupling, or greater. And I would usually choose uh, 70%. Um, and then the second coupling between um, the two large coils and the two small ones, you know, the large pair and the small pair, they might have a discrepancy of self-inductances of, um, I don't know, uh, well, let's, well, if the large one was a Henry each, then the small one might be 100 nano Henrys each, let's say, or a micro Henry each. Um, and then the uh, <clears throat> the mutual inductance of uh, between those small pair of coils, the na 100 nanohenries, would be in the vicinity of well would be derived from the first mutual inductance by mathematical precision. And this is what makes it so strange and odd. How do you build such a thing before we even finish describing how what the theory is? Uh, but to its construction, let alone, I mean, how do you build that, manifest it, but uh, with such precision? But if the first one is 70%, then the second one is you subtract 70% from 100%, that gives you 30%, and then you take the square root. 
um, uh, which is somewhere uh, slightly more than 50%. I forget the exact amount, either 54 or 51%. Um, and then for the fifth lone coil, which whose inductance, whose self-inductance is around the same as, or could be the same as the pair of small coils, but it doesn't have to be. <laughs> I've seen all kinds of configurations over the years. Um, but the third one, the mutual inductance between um, it and, well, let's see. No, no, no. The first, <laughs> the first mutual inductance was between the large coils, the large pair of coils, and the small pair of coils. The second mutual inductance was between the large pair of coils and the single coil. And the third mutual inductance is between the two small coils and the lone coil. That's it. <laughs> and so that third mutual inductance is derived from the first one, again, by taking 70%, subtracted from 100%, that gives you 30%. Now you take the cube of that, 30%, and whatever that is, is now your third mutual inductance. And you usually have to tweak that one a little bit. Or if it's small enough, discard it altogether. Like if your first mutual inductance is 99%, then um, your second's not going to be very big. I think it's 10%. And your third one is so excruciatingly, excruciatingly tiny that you can almost ignore it. And uh, it, everything will work just fine. In any case... Um, so the topic of this recording had to do with transients. They are negative. Uh, they are a negative. They are governed by Mother Nature, with a negative feedback, which is totally logical, owing to their behavior. The presence of the voltage that they let in from the ether, from counter space into space, into the real number system, <laughs> into the real uh, world of numbers and power, is um, that very voltage that comes in is the terminus of any further voltage coming in. So no, not much power is allowed to come in under conventional standards of ignoring it um, or else it's suppressed by the presence of voltage. You know, we apply, we assume uh, conservation of energy is a law all the time instead of a policy, a self-fulfilling policy. And so we assume the load requires our contribution of voltage plus extra to cover losses and so the transient surge is never allowed to occur under that presumption of the conservation of energy being a law all the time. It's not. But it's a self-fulfilling policy that we make it a law all the time by our belief, by our execution of our, <clears throat> of our belief in it all the time under all circumstances. And that maintains stability of the grid <clears throat> and all of our household wiring, um, and that's what we want. A stable life in which no overunity happens and we don't get brownouts or blackouts or surges that cause that could cause um, transformers to blow up at the substation or the pole transformer outside your home, or worse, your appliances blowing up. Uh, but <laughs> any case, well, that's usually prevented because... The house wiring is isolated from the grid, usually, <laughs> because the neutral of the grid and the neutral of the house wiring are not connected together <laughs> with a jumper cable. But they are increasingly so, according to Eric Dollard. Um, <clears throat> anyway, I wanted to give you an overview of the logic here. 
why it's so totally innocently natural that Mother Nature has provided us, the Creator has provided us, with the possibility for free energy if we wish to take advantage of it. But it's governed in such a way that it will never be a mistaken problem that Mother Nature will be irresponsible for. Uh, It's our doing if we let it get out of hand, and we don't. We have all of our electrical engineers and physicists brainwashed into believing that conservation of energy is a law all of the time, and so we consequently um, prevent transience from even appearing, let alone getting out of hand. But Mother Nature makes sure they don't get out of hand unless you engineer the circuit to encourage it to get out of hand. And it might be what happened to the planet that became an asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, in which the circuit that was put into place, if managed according to the way it was originally intended, would never have been a problem. Had not the inventor died, generations passed, and a new generation came along that said, oh, fuck, we'll do whatever we like, and uh, it doesn't look right, we're going to monkey with it, and before you know it, they blew up the planet. And now we have an asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter as a remnant of that former planet. Now, astrophysicists will claim that, oh, there's not enough matter there to constitute a solid planet, and I argued with my astrophysics teacher, well, what if planets are hollow? And he just thought that was way off the track and can't be true and end of discussion he didn't want to talk about it anymore so I didn't get very far with him and that was back in 94 1994 I had that discussion with my astrophysics teacher at uh, Cal State uh, Northridge but it didn't fly (laughs) senior level course didn't fly with the teacher He did help me pass, though. It wasn't an easy course. I did ask for his help. Please, uh, if you don't help me, I'm not going to be able to pass this course. So he did. And uh, once I got his confidence going, then I posed to him the, uh, oh, what's this thing about the asteroid belt, you know, between Mars and Jupiter? Could it be a planet? Oh, no. Not enough matter there to constitute a solid planet. Oh, maybe planets are not solid. Because I've known since 1991 that planets are not solid. I'm sorry I'm getting off track here, but... I might as well throw this in free of charge, no extra charge for this sidebar topic. Uh, I knew since 1991 because I realized that um, the arch that Bunks, if I can say his name right, Buckminster Fuller kept talking about, you know, he kept uh, um, praising the arches that the designers of the Gothic cathedrals had learned to make use of in order to create these huge vaulted ceilings to their churches so that the the churchgoers could stare up at the ceiling, the mural on the, uh, the underside of the ceiling, and marvel at how far away it was to make them feel like they're in God's holy temple. And this was the sky that was over their head. So they had flying buttresses on the outside of the building to hold up the building because the darn thing would collapse without it, without those flying buttresses. And every single flying buttress had a nice, curvaceous arch to it to hold the wall in place because that wall was ridiculously high <laughs> and elevated. Talk about a vaulted ceiling. Uh, elevated ceiling. They, so ever since reading his book on synergy and whatnot and reading about what he was saying, being an architect... 
uh, you know, Bucky uh, gave that kind of uh, slant to his discussion, and he, uh, he marveled at it, I marveled at it, and I thought, you know what, I bet that's the way planets are constructed, because when you think about it, if an arch is that potent, a design element, and you continue the arch around to create either an ellipse or a circle, which is the case with ellipsoidal galaxies, not with planets, but with galaxies, you can get an ellipsoidal shape to them, uh, and a kind of eggish shape, or ellipsoidal to be more precise, or spherical, as in the case of our twin-arm uh, Milky Way galaxy is spherical at its center. But regardless of how you work it, or regardless of how it turns out in nature, you get all these spherical ellipsoidal shapes, and very rarely do you get something that look, looks in the shape of a rock. And one of the moons of Jupiter actually has the shape of a rock, and you know what? It probably is. A big, huge, massive boulder. But every, all the other moons of Jupiter are spheroidal, and they're probably hollow. Anything spheroidal or ellipsoidal is probably hollow. So if it's a galaxy, it's probably devoid of stars on the, its interior, and if it's a planet or a, it's, or a star, it's probably devoid of material or energy in its center, except for the very center. I've always suspected, ever since I saw the movie uh, Twister with Helen Hunt, was it Helen Hunt? <clears throat> yes, Helen Hunt. And uh, Paxton, uh, Peter Paxton or Paul? Uh, I forget his first name. Paxton, though, is his last name. Um, he was uh, also in the movie, um, oh, what was it, the 80s movie? Oh, uh, Weird Science. Weird Science with Anthony Michael Hall. Um, in any case, in the movie Twister, they do a CGI of the inside of a twister because they're, they're in the two main characters of the movie are inside the twister, looking up into it, and there's this t double arm twister. It looks just like the Milky Way in the center, spinning around. The cylindrical shell of the twister that surrounds it and surrounds them. And this is the, t the funnel that they look up into that is busy sucking up air and material like crazy. So that's when I realized there's probably something not only... Well, I already suspected there's something at the center, but it's probably definite, and it's probably what drives the spheroidal shape in the first place, or the ellipsoidal shape. Well, in ellipsoidal, there'd be two of them, actually, now that I think of it. That's why it's an ellipse. But for a sphere, there's one. And it's something, some kind of mechanism that drives the thing that keeps it hollow and keeps it spheroidal, or in the case of two center points of energy or matter or both, it makes it ellipsoidal. Uh, but from just from logic, if you look at it logically, it, it means conservation of mass. Not in the sense of the physics law of conservation of energy, but in the sense of what became so popular in the 70s, we recycle things to conserve our use, our expenditure of matter and energy. Except we don't um, 
conserve our use of electricity by reusing it, although Paul Babcock and Jim Murray managed to do that 50 times over. But um, in terms of Mother Nature, just think of it. It, it, You use less matter to create a planet or a star or a galaxy, and yet you get all this volume for free, practically for free. You know, very little expensive energy and very little expensive matter. And yet, you, you get all that gravity and, and size, largesse, for practically nothing. And it makes, takes less energy to, to orbit, to send that planet, let's say, in orbit around the sun, our sun, because there's very little matter there engaging very little inertia. There's hardly any inertia there because it's hollow. It's not solid. So it, it, it conserves resources. That's the word I'm looking for. It conserves resources because of a highly efficient system. And <clears throat> Eric Dollard has said it's actually uh, the hollowness of celestial objects is a consequence of Tesla's theory of gravity in which there's no mechanism pulling things in. It's really a radiation uh, or a, what, how did he call it? Yes, a radiation of subatomic particles bombarding all the celestial objects from all directions. But when you get two of them and you analyze the, the space between them, they create a shadow between each other of a diminishment of these subatomic particles that don't manage to get through the celestial object but are absorbed by it. And it creates a one-sided pressure to push them together is what it amounts to. That's not a bad theory for how gravity um, erupts, but he said the planets have to be hollow to make that possible. I I was never quite sure why he made that statement, but um, I guess because if the planets were solid, they wouldn't budge. There'd be no gravity based on that theory. There wouldn't be enough force to push them together because their inertia would be too great. That's probably why. So they'd have to be hollow in in order to be more lightweight and easier to to manipulate into each other to make it look like they have gravity attracting each other. That's probably why. That makes sense. He he just never explained it. Nobody asked him to. I guess they're smart enough in the audience to figure it out. I'm not, you know. You know, I'm just taking it in and I'm wondering, what? <laughs> but now, talking, I, for the first time, all this, these years, I finally have figured out the possibility of why he said that. Just by making this recording. See, it's necessary for me to make these sidebars uh, tangential uh, discussions because it helps me think through questions that I've had all along. Or not, maybe recently, as the case may be. But anyway, uh, I've spoken enough on the topic and extra topics, so um, that ends this podcast.